0: the following message is from benediction church in hamilton ontario it's uh it's this evangelistic play that shows these various scenes about people who who live in different uh, who live in different ways and they die and they wake up in heaven face to face with an angel and the angel is in front of the has the book of life and everybody who wakes up in heaven hopefully their name is written in the book and then and the angel either sends them off to this part of the stage that's decorated to look like hell with flames and this person in black tights who drags people off or points to the other side of the stage with this big gate with tinsel and garland and this person comes out dressed as jesus who welcomes them up into into heaven um and i had a very negative reaction to it and i considered showing you a a video clip but I'm, i'm not going to i'll just say that it's on youtube if you want to check it out and uh but there are all these scenes. One of the scenes is of a little girl and her mother. And the, the little girl is a devoted Christian. She loves going to church. And the mother would drive her to church. But the mom was too busy to go to church herself. And um, the skit makes it clear that mom is a good person. She uh, is very generous with charities. She gives a lot of her time to charities. And, uh, um, and she's even interested in Jesus. But she never sort of took the time to pray a prayer to receive Jesus into her heart. So suddenly they die, as everybody in the play does, and they find themselves face to face with the angel. And um, so they wake up in heaven, and, the angel, and, and so the mom, when she realizes what's going on, she gets really upset, and she begs the angel, please, please tell me that my name is written in your book. The angel shakes her head, and she the, you see these two angels who are standing on either side of the gate, and they, they cross their swords in front of the gate, and then these demon characters dressed in black tights and face paint come and they start laughing and they come and grab the mother and drag her across the stage and uh, she's screaming and, and saying no please please tell me Jesus it's not too late tell me it's not too late I believe I believe tell me it's not too late and she's dragged off into the part of the stage that looks like like hell while the daughter watches the whole thing and screams, "Mommy, mommy, please don't leave me! No, I need my mommy. Mommy, don't leave me!" And and begging, "Please don't take my mom away! Don't take my mom away!" And she collapses to the stage. Five seconds later, the gate opens, and out comes the Jesus character. The girl stops crying, hugs Jesus, and the two of them go up into uh, into heaven uh, together. And, um, and she, as though like she forgets everything that had just happened. And so again, that had a, I had a very negative reaction to that before I was a before I was a Christian. What what upset me wasn't that God wasn't the idea that God judges people. Even back then, I, I believed that that is God's right. What upset me was that Christians think that this is what they need to do in order to get me to follow Jesus. Like poor little Jesus doesn't deserve my love and doesn't deserve my obedience on his own. He's got to threaten me with eternal uh, fire and punishment in order to, to, in order to you know, persuade me to believe in him. And that kept me away from the faith for a long time. And it actually keeps a lot of people away from the Christian faith. In fact, I still react when I, this week I showed my kids some, a few scenes from the play and we talked about it. And, um, and I realized I still have a reaction to it. And I was thinking like today I have a better sort of sense of why I react this way. And it's possible that I'm just too defensive about this. It's possible that I'm projecting, but I do think there are a few things. One, um, one problem I have is that I think it actually twists some important parts of God's word I think it takes some of Jesus' warnings that he had that he said in a very specific context with very specific goals to very specific people and it weaponizes those warnings and that, I think that that's a problem. I also think it's really lazy You know, I think it's lazy. I think that lots of people, especially children, are going to see a play like this, and they're going to get really scared, and they're going to ask Jesus into their hearts, not because they believe that he's good, but because because they're so afraid of going to hell. And I think that that's lazy, and it's cheap, and God deserves better. Okay? But another reason why I I realize it sort of upsets me is because I know that it just doesn't last. I know lots of people who were sort of converted under that kind of teaching, and it's And it just doesn't it doesn't last in fact god's word says there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears hasn't been perfected in love in other words the fear the fear of hell the fear of going to hell and being punished forever that is not the same as loving god and somebody who's converted by this kind of turn or burn preaching that might last for a while there, but they've probably become a follower of Jesus. They've probably believed, if they have, they've probably believed for the, for the wrong reasons. And that's really important. That's worth holding on to. Now, just so you know, that's not a new approach to evangelism. And you don't have to spend much time in the Middle Ages art in order to see that long time ago, priests and bishops knew that they could scare people into church with images like this. And this is literally one of dozens that I could have shown you. And this is one of the tamer ones where you have scary devil-looking creatures dancing around in flames while people suffer and are being stabbed by pitchforks and stuff. Now, God doesn't want us to say yes to Jesus because of this, okay? This isn't what we're meant to do with the warnings that Jesus gives us in Scripture. I think that this is a distortion. And as we're going to see today, uh, the Apostles' Creed gives us uh, something very different. In fact, it can guard us from these things. Today is an exciting day because we're wrapping up, this is the sort of the culminating study of our study of the Apostles Creed. This is our seventh and final message in the series. And, um, uh, and at the end, you know, at the end of the, the service, just as usual, like you see, there's a phone number on the bottom of the screen. You're invited as we go along. if you have questions that come up, um, feel free to text those in. I will not name you if you're in my contacts, but uh, if we have time at the end of the service, I'll do my best to answer those questions. Um, but today, where we're, what we're asking is, where is all of this going? Like, what is it, what is it that happens when we die, if we're followers of Jesus, or, or if we're not? And then after that, what is there to look forward to? And we're going to see, the, the creed uh, doesn't actually say anything about heaven and hell, but it does point us to these two really big, important ideas, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Okay, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And to make this clear, what I do is I want to go back to Scripture, back before the days of Turner-Byrne preaching, um, and see what the Bible says, first of all, about God's judgment. All right? We're going to spend some time talking about God's judgment. And there we have, in Scripture, we have word pictures of God's judgment. Like when Jesus was speaking to people, when he's, particularly when he's speaking to believers who had become corrupt or who had become uh, hypocritical or greedy or self-righteous, He warned them with really horrible word pictures about what God's judgment was going to be like. And there's lots of these different word pictures. One of them is a blazing furnace. Another one is darkness, outer darkness. It's like being excluded from a party or being like, there's like this banquet going on inside and you're not welcome. You're stuck in this outer darkness. Another one is a pit or an abyss where you land and you're falling forever and ever and ever. Another one is eternal fire, eternal punishment. Like, the idea there that it's everlasting, it's long, that there's no escape from it. Another one of these word pictures is worms. Worms that never die. Which is pretty horrible, right? The idea there is it's that there's these maggots that are eating you, and they never run out of parts of you to consume. So it's, it's, it's pretty horrible. Another one is, this is from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This, uh, this person who dies and finds himself in torment or in agony... Um, and these are all lots of different word pictures to describe what God's judgment is, is, going, to be, is going to be like. And if we want to take these and, and make these work literally, as literal descriptions of what judgment is going to be like, you can try to do that, but you've got to figure out how do you make sense of, how do you put um, like fire and darkness together? How do you put fire and worms together and pits and all of these things? So these are word pictures, okay? Another one of these word pictures is hell. And hell is all over the New Testament. Jesus had more to say about hell than anybody. <clears throat> but in, in our Bibles, the English word that's translated hell is actually a translation of a few different ideas. Okay, Hell is a translation of a few different ideas. One of those ideas is, uh, is this, this name, Gehenna. Gehenna is the name of um, a garbage dump that burned outside of Jerusalem. It was a horrible place, disgusting place, and Jesus uses that one a lot in the New Testament, in in the Greek written, uh, like in the written Greek of the New Testament, and we've translated that in our English, and we've called that hell. Another word that's translated hell is the word Hades. Uh, The Greek word Hades describes what was believed in Greco-Roman cultures to be the waiting place of the dead. It was a place where where dead people went and they waited for judgment. The word Hades is sometimes translated hell in our English uh, versions as well. So is this word Tartarus. Tartarus is, which you've probably never heard of, Uh, is the the name of the greek underworld where in greek mythology evil people went and they spent eternity in prison there our new testament takes that word and also translates that into uh, the english word hell so when we talk today if we talk casually or carelessly about hell we should be careful and, and think like what are we actually describing like when we talk about hell or someone going to hell what do we literally mean by that when when it's a word picture Right? So hell is another word picture, and so is this, the lake of fire, the lake of fire, the second death. So in the book of Revelation, way at the end of our Bible, we have this vivid picture of judgment that uh, the Apostle John gives us in the lake of fire. And, and we should ask, based on what he writes there, what is going on there? Who is this lake of fire for? Okay? So in Revelation 20, we read that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented there day and night forever and ever. The devil is thrown into that lake to be tormented there. Okay? So it's for him. He's not like the king of hell, ruling over it and dancing and really enjoying the party. He's sent there as, as punishment. The devil is. If this, if this dream, if this vision is to be taken seriously. And, and, and I think it is. What happens after that? So the, then Revelation 20 continues and says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Then, after the devil and Satan... Sorry, after the devil and death and, and Hades are sent into the lake for, to be judged, then we read, if anyone's name was not found and written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And we should ask, who is that? Like, who, who's included in that? And uh, in Revelation one eight, we have the, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, ser- uh, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their place was in the lake of fire. And that's, that's probably the most vivid picture I think we have in the Bible of God's judgment. And it's horrible. And John doesn't even use the word hell. And, and, and we should ask if, why not? And I think it seems, it seems to me that, that, that um, we are not meant to understand precisely what God's judgment is going to look like. It's just too, it's, it's too horrible. Right? And and, um, and it seems that right from death, though, there is this separation between God and all those who have rejected his love, all those who have gone their own way. And even if we're not sure what that experience looks like, literally, we can still take these warnings seriously. God's justice will be perfect. It'll be complete. He's not going to miss anything, not even the devil and, and death itself. So that's what we, sh- we should see these things about God's judgment. On the other hand, what should we know about Heaven. What should we believe about heaven? I'm much more comfortable talking about this stuff, I'll tell you. Um, first, God, uh, heaven is God's home. Heaven is God's home. I, I was able to do a bit of a count, and I found at least 40 places in the Old Testament where God is, is referred to in various ways as God in heaven. Um, one of those kinds of variations is Isaiah 66, where it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool then when Jesus, he shares with us how we should pray, he teaches us to pray saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we just prayed this a few minutes ago. Heaven is where God is. It's his home. And it's a place where God's will is being done perfectly. Okay, that's heaven. Also, heaven is where God brings us when we die. It's a place where God is delighted to bring us when we die. John 14, Jesus taught this. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And that's so beautiful. You know, Jesus right now is there in heaven preparing a place for us. Okay? Um, The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 he gives us a sense of what he believed waited for him immediately after death. He says, "Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better." Like if he dies immediately, that's it's it's, it's, it's um he gets to be with Christ. To die is gain. He gets to be with Christ because it's he, like dying is gain because he gets immediately to go and be with uh, with Jesus. One more, Luke 23. This is this beautiful scene uh, where Jesus is hanging on the cross and having a conversation with another thief beside him. And this thief is like, Jesus, would you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? Like someday that's coming. And uh, when, whenever that day is, would you please not forget me? And Jesus says to him, Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, you don't have to wait. You're going to be with me there today. And so we can be confident from all of these things that um, at the moment of death, everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who has said yes to Jesus as their Lord and has, has Jesus on the throne of their life, all of those people will be immediately welcomed into his presence in this place we call heaven. Now, think of how amazing that'll be. That's going to be pretty awesome, but that's not even the end of the story for us, um, because the Creed, if you remember, the Creed doesn't say anything about heaven and hell, but the Creed goes on, and it wants us to keep track of this, this idea of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So think about that. The apostles are not running around Europe and Asia preaching about heaven and hell. What they are preaching to people about is the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So let's see, what, do we, what should we believe about the resurrection of the body? What do we mean when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body? There's a few things I want to share here. First, this is from Romans 6. This is a beautiful promise. If we've been united with him in a death like his, like Jesus, who actually died, and we will, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So there's a resurrection that's coming, and, that's, and, and we will experience that uh, as well. 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul writes... Uh, what is basically sort of a sneak preview of the resurrection that's in store for us, all right? Um, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so we will always be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes almost an entire first, the entire 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians to explain what our resurrection is going to be like. It's a beautiful chapter. I encourage you to have a read of it. But we have there another preview of what our risen bodies are going to be like. This also, just, ha- just so you know, this, is, this, ha- this tends to be a sort of a favorite passage uh, for funerals. Especially if you have somebody who's been sick for a really, really long time. This, uh, this is a great passage for giving people hope. So the Apostle Paul writes there, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, um, it, he says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And he goes on and on and on, but what you can see about this body that we're going to receive. Is It's going to be imperishable. It's going to be glorious and powerful and immortal and untouchable by, by death. Now, I don't know if that's a new idea to you, but think about that, kids. So someday, you're going to receive a new body. Okay. So think about the things that you, you can do in your body, which are pretty great. Think about the things that you wish you could do in your body, but you can't. And, and, and like what it's going to be like when you receive your new body in the resurrection. Like, do you think you're going to—maybe you're going to get to jump super high or, like, run super fast like a cheetah or something like that? Or maybe you'll—I don't, I don't know. It's, it's for us to imagine what this resurrection body is going to be like. And what I love about this is whereas these word pictures that we have about heaven and hell point to something else, and it's not always totally easy for us to put those together, this one is. This is literally true, okay, This is literally true, if we can get our minds around it, that as followers of Jesus, our destiny is not to float in the clouds, but we look forward to being raised from the dead, like Jesus, in risen bodies like his risen body. And that is good, good news. And I love what uh, N.T. Wright has to say about this. He says, um, that's N.T. Wright, that is not Jürgen Moltmann. Um, N.T. Wright says, heaven is important, but it's not our final destination. If you want to say that when someone dies, they go to heaven, fine. But that's only a temporary holding pattern that is life after death. And what I'm much more interested in, or the New Testament is much more interested in, is life after life after death. Life after life after death. That's what we look forward to in the resurrection of the body and in life everlasting. Life everlasting. We read in John 6, uh, Jesus said... This, and this is one of the many places where he says it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Eternal life. What is, now, that's not, just a de- that, that's not just a description of how long the life lasts. It is eternal in the sense that it lasts forever. But he's going back to something that was uh, introduced long before in the prophets in this idea of shalom. And so Isaiah 65 uh gives us a a snapshot of this picture of what eternal life is going to be like. On behalf of God, Isaiah says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. Like, think of how different this new world is going to be. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, dust shall be the serpent's food, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Man, I can't wait for that. This is a picture of a new world of, of, of a new, where there's a new reality of flourishing, of blessing, of peace and freedom and equality. And there's no more competition for us to, to have what we need. Everybody has what we need. The Hebrew word that captures all of this, that describes the, the, the Hebrew sort of hope, uh, is shalom. We looked, the people, God's people have always looked forward to the day of Shalom that was coming when Messiah would come. He was going to bring Shalom, and, and Isaiah gives us a, a glimpse of that. And so whereas Shalom is introduced way back in the prophets, we have a preview of it being fulfilled at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, which, um, which Elizabeth read for us uh, earlier. The Apostle John has this beautiful vision of what was coming, the fulfillment of Shalom. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. That chaotic sea where there are sea monsters and you, there are shipwrecks, and you can get hurt in there because it's so deep and nobody knows what's going on. It's no more. And so someday there will be perfect shalom on earth. When Christ comes and his kingdom comes, the world will be put right. No more death, no more disease, no more grief or crying or pain. And that is the full and final expression of God's kingdom. When we say God's kingdom come, that's what we look forward to. It's earth 2.0. And this is amazing. It's amazing. God wants you to know your destiny What we look forward to isn't mainly being reunited with our dead loved ones, although that's good. Our destiny isn't mainly to be uh, free from sickness, although that also is very good. But if that's what we look forward to, and we don't care whether or not God himself is there, we would be miserable in God's kingdom. Okay, our hope, our destiny is that we get to be with God in person, in risen bodies, doing life together in his new world forever. In shalom, the way we were meant to all along. And when I hear that, man, it blows my mind and I'm like, what else do we need? Like, what else do we need to hear? How could that not be enough? If that's not enough, what is God presents this reunion of heaven and earth like, like a wedding. And I want us to think about that for a minute. Um, it's, uh, we're coming up on uh, 19 years now since I, I proposed to Heather. 19 years ago, I proposed to her this month. Um, and if you don't know the story, she'll tell you it someday. She might tell it a little differently than I will right now. Um, but I'll say this. We went on a date to Eastside Mario's. Um, we were both finishing university at Guelph. Uh, I had spoken to her parents and gotten permission, and um, I had bought her a ring on credit. Um, so we went out to dinner Eastside Mario's. We had a, a, an inexpensive dinner, and I think Heather knew that something was up because she, was, she, she has told me since that I was a little quieter than, than usual, um, and also because she had gotten a whole bunch of calls that day on her landline from people who left messages or called her just to tell her that they think Mike is a super guy like five or six different people called and said, like, you know, that Mike, he's just a super guy. And I might have had something to do with that. Um, But at the end of the night, we walked back to the university center from our date at Eastside Mario's, and we sat down at this table that I had had some friends prepare for us. And I sat her down, and we uh, we had a great conversation, And, and that's where I asked her if she would marry me. And obviously she said yes, and here we are. Now, I want you to imagine, though, suppose... Suppose, as I'm proposing marriage to Heather, suppose I said to her, now before you give me your answer, I want you to think about this seriously. I want you to understand that if you don't say yes, I'm going to throw you into a pit in the deepest, darkest dungeon forever where you will be tormented if you don't say yes. Well, of course, like, I should not need to threaten her with punishment, right? Like, we would call that an abusive relationship. We would, we would want her to take, we would want her to run from a person like that, right? On the other hand, I want you to think, imagine if Heather receiving my proposal of marriage, if she had said, well, maybe, just, but promise me that if I say yes, promise me that I get the biggest house, promise me that I get the three-car garage, the hot tub, the fastest cars, the finest clothes, and on and on and on. If she were to if she were to demand that in addition to getting to spend, you know, marriage with me, I'd be like like wait, what? Cuz that's not what marriage is. It's not that those things are bad, it's that if she says yes, we want it to be for the right reasons, right? And in the same way, if a person, if we, as we share Jesus with others, we want them to say yes to Jesus for the right reasons. We want them to trust him and to, to love him for the right reasons. And just so you know, there are lots of people that you and I know in this city and elsewhere who learned to see Jesus as their insurance policy. Right? They, they came to see Jesus as their escape from hell and not as their beloved, not as their hero, not as their savior, and not as their friend. And he is all of these things. And I really believe as a church, we should grieve that. That should make us, that should make us sad. I want, us to, I want to be really clear, there are two problems around us. One of those problems is, is unbelief. But another problem is wrong belief. Okay? It's a problem that there are people who don't believe, who who don't know Jesus, and that's causing them to make all kinds of destructive choices with their life. That is, we should, we grieve that. Okay? But we also grieve that there are people out there who only ever learned to be terrified of God. The people who, who we, we, we grieve that the only thing that they understand today about the Christian faith is that if they don't clean up their act, they're going to burn forever in hell doesn't that grieve your heart? That grieves me. It really makes me sad. We want it to be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. And that's going to be when people see and hear and experience that God is good, that he loves them, that he's crazy about them, that he's done everything that needed to happen so that we can experience him and see him as good. And we get to join him in that mission. We get to join him in that mission of making him known so that other people can see um, how good he is. Now, I want to say a word to the kids as as I close here. Kids, especially my kids. I know we talk about this, but this is really important. We do want you to believe, okay? We want you to believe in Jesus. We want you to follow Jesus your whole life long. But we don't want you to do that just to make your moms and dads happy, all right? We want you to follow Jesus, not because you're scared that he's going to punish you if you don't. We want you to follow Jesus because he loves you so much and he is so good. We want you to follow Jesus because he's better than anything else that the world has to offer. I really believe that. And the same goes for you grown-ups, okay? That's why we want to follow him. And, and, and um, uh, last story, I, I, I did an interview recently with a young man who was interviewing for a pastor job in our denomination. This is one of the ways that I sometimes serve the AGC. Um, it was a young man just at a seminary who was um, a little too self-assured, so in the interview I went a little bit off script. And I asked him this question, and um, it, it was like this. I asked, suppose it turned out that we have misunderstood what the Bible teaches about God's judgment Suppose we've misunderstood that. Suppose it turns out that there isn't a hell and that Jesus is going to save everyone in the end. What would that change for you? How would that affect your ministry and how you do, how you share the gospel? So I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I'd encourage you to think about that. But this man, this young man, his answer for me was this. He said, then, then what's the point? What's the point? Why would anybody want to be a Christian? He really said this, why does anybody need to hear about Jesus? Why share the gospel? And I was like, really? Like, have you met him? Like, he's really good. He's really, really good. And that made me sad. This makes me sad. As you probably know from from talking to me in, in conversation, I almost never talk about God's judgment. Not because I don't believe that it's real, but because I know it's not how God wants to build his kingdom. There really is a lot of religious trauma out there, and there never needed to be. Okay? God will build his kingdom. He's going to judge perfectly. He's going to right every wrong, and we can trust him for that. And we get to be delighted with him forever. We can be delighted with him forever, and so are the friends of yours who are waiting to hear about Jesus. They can, get to, they can be delighted with, with the Lord in his kingdom forever as well. And I really believe, I really believe that we're going to be surprised to see who is included when that kingdom comes. So I love thinking about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. I've loved this study that we've been on about the Apostles' Creed, um, the whole thing, but especially this conclusion. And as we wrap up the series this morning, I want to just share a few questions with you um, that you can take home, and I'll put them up here on the screen. So... First question is this. Did you start following Jesus for the right reasons? Did you start, did you start following Jesus for the right reasons? Or, or will you? If you didn't, will you start following him for the right reasons? Second, how has this study of the, of the creed challenged or is it, how, how has it changed what you believe? Third question. Um, if you could rewrite the Apostles' Creed today, would you leave it as it is or would you improve it? If you could rewrite it, would you leave it? Would you try to do something to improve it? And then finally, what are some possibly bad ideas perhaps towards God or towards others that God may be asking you to lay down? And and what are some new truths God is asking you to pick up? Thank you for listening.